Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to Brio TV, the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Super Channel, which in April is once again hosting a virtual version of the Indie Spirited Canadian Film Fest. And by Bell Media, urging you to get into it this April, especially for the upcoming 93rd Annual Academy Awards. And finally, by Hollywood Suite, home of the BBC lockdown comedy Staged, starring David Tennant and Michael Sheen, premiering April 1st. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming to uh, listen again here at uh, Brio TV, the podcast. And um, always welcome. It's always fun. We're talking about television and uh, very, very excited to have uh, a young man here today who I've admired for several years now. Actor, writer, director, hockey fan, proud Canadian, Jay Baruchel. Jay, welcome. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks for the kind words. Oh, my goodness. You know, it comes easy. And, uh, and Jay, tell me, I always ask, uh, why? Why are you speaking with uh, me today? I am speaking with you today uh, because uh, I uh, am on a TV show that is uh, having its season premiere on the 1st of April. And I was uh, offered a handful of press uh, opportunities. I uh said no to some and in order to say no to some you have to say yes to some others and uh <laughs> so <laughs> here i find myself chatting with you no i, I honored and uh, uh honored to be here you and i have chatted before and and you have i, I think at least twice if not three times um and uh, and and yeah i've always we've always gotten on pretty well so it was an easy yes well, that's nice to hear. And uh, yeah, we have, and they're memorable for me, uh, talking to you uh, way back. Honestly, Jay, I think perhaps the first time I encountered you in person, I remember that Television Critics Association, we were down in LA 20 years ago, and uh, you were in a little show called Undeclared, and oh. Fox Network brought us to a, a place sometown, somewhere in downtown LA. It was a cool venue, I remember. And uh, there was Judd Apatow and uh, Seth Rogen and yourself. Uh, and I remember talking to you then. My God, you were like 17 or something, very young. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a hell of a night and a, a great occasion. And it was just wonderful for me. I've covered TV for a long time yeah. uh, to see uh, people so excited to, to get this opportunity. That was my vivid memory of you on that night. Do you remember that event? Yes, yes, I, I do. Uh, um, yeah, we we were all we were all pretty psyched because um, it was one of those rare um, rare times where everyone involved with the show were all kind of in agreement that it was really really good. Yeah. Um, like you have you 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 can typically have. Um, varying degrees of connection let's say this doesn't not to not to touch on commitment or work ethic you know although that can often be a thing too but in just in terms of like you know it's rare to have a full cast and full team of writers and directors who all 
see this the, the show through the same rose-colored glasses. Like, we were all really big fans of it before a second of it had aired. Um, so, yeah, we were kind of... We were really, really proud. And, and it was also like, yeah, there's something fun about, um, there's something fun about that TCA party the first time. You <laughs> the first time. Yeah. That's how I feel. Uh, well, you, you were in a good, uh, spirits that night for sure. And, uh, tell, just run down some of your castmates on undeclared, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So, uh, Seth Rogen, um, Charlie Hunnam, uh, Carla Gallo, uh, Monica Kina, uh, Tim Sharp, um, and then uh, uh, Loudon Wainwright, of course, uh, as as my father. Uh, we had Amy Poehler, um, I believe, either right before or the year that she had started on Saturday Night Live. Wow! Um, in a recurring uh, part, um, and then we had a bunch of really great. Uh, guest stars too uh ben stiller adam sandler will ferrell um pretty of them yeah i've heard of them yeah yeah (laughs) you may you may you may have heard of one or two of their their names might sort of dust off some cobwebs at the back of your brain but yeah Mm. no pretty cool and also when you look at the uh the writing team on that show as well as everyone who was brought in to direct it you know the, the these are the sort of these are people that would go on to be responsible for the majority of the next 10, 15, 20 years worth of Hollywood comedy. Yeah. And so it's kind of neat to see undeclared serves as kind of a, a bit of a, uh, a bit of a big bang moment. Um, right. For kind of the, the frat pack or whatever you want to call it, but yeah. a, a, everything that's come um, starts there. You know, it's a it's a remarkable. It must have felt like stepping into the jet stream of pop culture at that point. I mean, as you say, it was uh, such a promising group of creators and uh, actors. Um, yeah. You know, and, and look at everybody today. Uh, yeah. And you've done that a couple of times in your career. It's quite remarkable. Well, what was it that put you on uh, Judd Apatow's radar? Of course, in Canada, we you, you'd been on popular mechanics for kids and are you afraid of the dark and things like that but what what was it that uh got you in front of judd i think it was uh the my my two or three scenes in uh, almost famous right Um, yeah um i for at the time for me almost famous it sort of felt like it marked kind of the the end of my career because I had not that it, not that it ended it, but just like it was a great bookend, I should say, because even when I started at 12, I always knew that I was acting as a means of being on set, not the other way around. I always uh-huh. knew that I wanted to be a director. And even when I started at 12, mom said, you know, you, you want to go to film school, this will be the best film school you can go to. Yeah. And so my goal was always, okay, I'll, I'll work in as a child actor in Canada with all the sort of caveats that come with that and try my best to save up some money and just know that um, I have no 
chasing of the brass ring as an actor in me. I don't need to, to do that. I, I, I want to, if I can make a decent living and, and save up some money so that when I turn 18, 19 and the work starts kind of drying up for me, I'll have something to live off while I figure out how to get my writing and directing career going. And, and that's sure enough, that's what was happening. 17, 18 well, I'll just say from 16 through 18, I started just working less and less. And I was like, not a cute kid and by no metric a man. And so the, the work had sort of dried up and, um, and almost famous came out and it was this cool kind of thing. And, uh, you know, all my friends were like, Oh wow, you're in a big movie that's at the movie theaters. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. And, but that was kind of that. And I was like, you know, ordering a whole bunch of prospectuses from schools across the world, um, just trying to figure out what I was, you know, what the next phase was going to look like now that I, you know, had done my acting thing. And then. And, and Jay, oh. just, just, just to remark on that in a way, my memory of almost famous is that while you had just two or three scenes, you really made the most of them. Like it was impactful, you. you know, you know, thank you. Thank so you. I, I could was- see why that would have uh, gotten attention. It was a pretty cool thing too, because Almost Famous was the first time, first time on set where a director had encouraged me to ad lib, um, you know. And I'd always been sort of that had always been poo pooed to some degree before that. And then there, you know, Cameron Crowe was literally asking me to just riff uh, until he called cut, you know, and 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 it was. And, and so it's a crazy thing to be on your first big set, to be down in L.A. on a big American, like, studio movie, having, you know, yeah. uh, not done anything close to that before. And then, act- and then on top of the being in the big time, to be given that kind of freedom was pretty crazy. And then, of course, a year later, and I couldn't get arrested, and that was all good. But once, so anyway, I, one day I was home from school, and I was playing – in my video games, because the PlayStation, for whatever reason, was in my sister's room. So I was just playing computer. I was playing PlayStation in her room, and the phone rang, and I happened to answer. And uh, this woman's voice on the phone, I'm so-and-so calling from uh, Allison Jones Casting in Los Angeles. We're casting a TV show called The Untitled Judd Apatow Project. Um, our casting director saw you in Almost Famous and thought you would be really great. Would you like to read for it? And yeah, man, that's how, that's how everything wow. else started. That's how the entire, like, I really didn't think I would be an actor at all in my adult life. And, uh, and it all starts there. Well, and even further back, like there's a remarkable um, something with popular mechanics for kids, isn't it? Like all you young kids, Alicia Cuthbert, and, yeah. uh, you know, it really was a rocket fuel for, youngsters uh that that led you know everything kept connecting but you could see it starting even then um and just uh undeclared my goodness so here's a great show with great talent and of course it lasts one season i think right um i asked uh fox about this um oh warren littlefield was producing a show for fox at the time that didn't last uh keen eddie i don't know if you remember that but he had this series and i said what is it with Fox? They created all these great shows, um, and and they uh, they don't last. And he said that the uh, development had a m- much more courage than programming. That it was 
funny how networks sometimes the left hand doesn't know what the right hand you know and right. and that was he felt what was part of the problem there with uh, all of these great shows um that didn't quite break through for some reason um, yeah right i i i don't uh, understand uh that kind of thinking i have i've learned to like know that i can trust my instincts when it comes to sort of creating something but I have zero instincts when it comes to knowing whether or not something will hit. Um, I, I, and, and whether or not people will believe it enough to give it the uh, requisite amount of runway for it to do its thing, you know? So, so especially back then, certainly I was, I was 19 when the show was canceled, you know? (laughs) So, so, (laughs) yeah. Um, So I, I, I have no idea what the sort of, uh, you know, uh, decision-making was uh, behind the scenes. Um, wow. it, but I it, definitely think that some degree it was a case of pearls before swine, no, no matter what. And I think Fox knows that or else they wouldn't have put, you know, a DVD box set of the bloody show out. So Right, exactly. Um, my other memory of that night in L.A. with the cast at the first uh, TCA was uh, Seth Rogen openly boasting that i don't think he had a green card at the time (laughs) (laughs) i didn't either (laughs) wow that's hilarious uh you know so so judd was uh i guess hiding you guys in the attic or something (laughs) i came down on a visa (laughs) (laughs) it seems to have worked out Hopefully we'll all be vaccinated and out and about again soon, but for the past year, we've been coping with isolation and masks and sanitizers and everything else. It's been tough on everybody, but think of the actors and crew members who've been trying to churn out new episodes of TV shows to distract the rest of us who've been cooped up in front of the TV sets. Well, starting April 1st on Hollywood Suite. Well, this month on Hollywood Suite, you can peek behind the COVID curtain and see for yourself what these actors are going through. Michael Sheehan, you've seen him lately in Prodigal Son, and David Tennant, one of the better Doctor Whos, have made a six-part BBC comedy called Staged. They're playing fictionalized versions of themselves, trying to rehearse a performance while talking to each other on a video conference call. The six-part half-hour series was filmed entirely during the pandemic and features guest appearances by Judy Dench, Samuel L. Jackson, and Adrian Lester. So what you see is Tenet and Sheehan in their own houses working on a play. These guys are friends in real life, and it's fun watching them goof on each other for our amusement. That's staged in April exclusively on Hollywood Suite. We're back now in conversation with Jay Baruchel. Now, uh, again, I got to ask you about another show that goes back to those days because it's a, such an eccentric show, the Drunk and on Drugs Happy Fun Time Hour. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember uh, being on the on location out in Halifax with yeah. Crazy Trailer Park Boys yeah. on this thing. This was madness, sheer yeah. madness. Did you ever see it? Yeah, I did. <laughs> it's it's insanity. Yeah, it, it um it was like basically I got Mike Smith's email 
Uh, 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 Todd Maitland, the the sound mixer on The Sorcerer's Apprentice, a movie I did with Nicolas Cage, um, he, he said to me, it came up in conversation one day. He knew I was Canadian, so he said, did you ever watch a show called The Trailer Park Boys? And I told him, ever watch it. It's my, like, favorite thing ever. It's religion to me. And he's like, oh, well, one of them is a, a, a good friend of mine. And I was like, well, give, if you feel comfortable sharing his contact info with me, please. Um, and he did. And I went home to Montreal, and I typed up this cold out of nowhere email to Mike where I, I basically was just effusive and was like, I put you guys up there with pizza and joy division and just everything that I adore. And, you know, and I was like, you know, I just want you to know I'm a huge fan. I literally have a poster of you guys up in my room, which is true, which was true at the time. And, um, and then right away, Mike wrote back and was like, uh, Hey man, we were, we were fans of yours too. And we're doing this kind of new show because at the time trailer park boys was done. It had been canceled after season six or seven. Um, and it was kind of a bit of a falling out there. And, and, and so they, this was going to, this was the next thing they were doing after the show. And they were, you know, and I said, I would just come out there to pick up your fucking dry cleaning. So I, I, and then Mike was so nice. He let me stay at his place and, and I went out there and yeah, did this crazy ass show. And um, yeah, man, it was just like, it was, like I said, I literally, I would have picked up their dry cleaning, but they treated me like royalty and, and yeah. they're dear, dear friends of mine to this day. And I actually last, last year um, I was out there uh, right before Right before COVID really hit, um, uh, February, March, I was in Halifax with my writing partner, Jesse, because we were in the writer's room for um, season three of the Trailer Park Boys animated series. But it has, uh, since then, the, the, the plug is being pulled. Um, oh, too bad. It was a, a pity because we were, it was our, we had just joined the team. We had, you know, we weren't there for season one and two, and we were really psyched to be writing three with them. And we were coming up with some, a really fun, fun, fun gig, obviously, and the most fun gig in the world, just going into a room to write jokes with them every day. And oh, um, yeah. it was becoming increasingly apparent that Canada was not immune to a wow. pandemic. And uh, so we had to go home, and then, um, yeah, then the plug got pulled. But um, which, which is crazy that that's actually the second time that that's kind of happened to us, because like about 10 years ago, Jesse and I went out there for a week, and did another writer's room with the boys um, for a feature called the fire cobras that um, nothing has, you know, uh, we've never found a way to do anything with it, but, um, but yeah, I get on with them. I socialize with them and, and we work, we love working with them. Well, the fact that the drunken on drugs, happy fun time hour got a green light at, I think global of all places uh, astounds me to this day. I think there was like a Trojan penis, Oh, there was all sorts of crazy shit in that thing. And, and uh, yeah, there was a Trojan peanut. Yeah, I think it was actually on. Do you remember when Showcase had those niche channels like yeah. Action, the Action TV or whatever? Yeah, it was that. It was on Action. It was, well, I'll tell <laughs> which you. Which is why you and I are the only people talking well, about it, I suspect. I'll tell you what happened there, Jay, that it was it was approved and, and the the executive in charge of global in those days, and now she's running CBC is Barbara Williams. And um, 
so they they shot this mad show and then uh, barb watched it and said to call them in and said look this doesn't make any sense can you build a th- story around it make put like somebody talking so they they basically got uh the brilliant comedian um oh my goodness i'm drawing a blank on her name sedaris uh, oh yeah, Amy Sedaris. Yeah. So they got Amy Sedaris. They put like a wig on her. They made her look like Barb Williams, and they had <laughs> had her drinking cocktails and literally just saying, "I'll fire these guys." Like she, they made her out to be Barb, and then Barb, of course, saw it and then said, "Well, okay, I'll fix them and put it on action." Uh, <laughs> that's what happened to that show. Let's bury it. We paid for it. We got to burn it up, but um, it ain't airing on Global. No. It's, so, uh, but uh, I always thought it was a heroic uh, move by uh, Mike Smith and company to do that. Yeah. Um, there's so much to talk about. I, I just, I know we'll jump around a bit, but I just want to get at this point to, um, uh, well, Million Dollar Baby, because uh, the idea that you're working with Clint Eastwood has to have been a pivotal moment for you. And you were so Thank great you. in that film. Uh, tell, us a Clint, tell us a Clint Eastwood story. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was crazy, man. Um, yeah, it was the only job I've ever had still to this day that, like, my granddad would have been impressed by who my <laughs> boss was, you know? Um, and so so that was pretty – I was keenly aware of that the, while I was on set the whole time. Um, I uh, – well, I, I remember him – I mean, he just says all sorts of cool shit um he doesn't say much and when he talks everybody drops what they're doing and he barely speaks above a whisper and it's always something because no matter what it's clint eastwood saying it too so um but there's like this scene when i get beat up pretty bad in the movie and i I remember right before we were ready to shoot it he said uh now jay i've i've uh, kicked the shit out of a lot of guys on screen over the years and i can tell you every single time it was them doing the work not me it's the guy getting beat up has to has to sell it so it's all on you and um and he was like super cool and we uh you know when we i remember we 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 did, I think, maybe one, two rehearsals, shot it three times, and then we were done. And and the, the, there's a bit of a learning curve, I found, because, like, day one, over-eager, kind of keener actor, I kept saying, was that okay? Was that okay, sir, after every take, you know? And, and he kept saying, yeah, it's fine, yeah, it's fine. And I was like, oh, no, he's going to fire me. And I was, like, running all these scenarios in my head of him, of the – email chain that would go out and eventually <laughs> a cell phone call for my manager being like, they're, they're going to go some another way with the character or something. And, um, and I guess Morgan Freeman saw me kind of, yeah, getting in my head. And he, uh, said, um, if he doesn't say anything, it means he likes it. And, right. and it was this like pretty good moment because it was kind of, not, not nothing short of a of an epiphany for me because I realized at that moment and it saved me and it saved my career because yeah I I realized how I feel about my performance is is utterly irrelevant I'm not the one sort of using it as a tool to craft a story he the director is and 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 so what difference does it make how connected I personally felt or didn't feel to what I was doing in the time if the director is happy with what I gave that's all that matters like and and from that point on 
I don't think I've ever asked for another take since maybe, maybe once or maybe once, but yeah, it was just like, it, it allowed me to compartmentalize and allowed me to sort of, um, yeah, not eat away at my own confidence with self doubt. I just like, yeah, wow. if they're, if the, if the boss is happy, what else is there? Was Eastwood someone who would do several takes or minimal? Very or? few, very, wow. very, very few. Him and Cronenberg and both had that in common of like uh, bare minimum amount of rehearsal, you know, j- rehearse just so, so much so that like, we know where to sit and where we're going to walk to. And so that the crew can do it, you know, f- shoot what they have to shoot and light it properly, but nothing beyond that. Wow. And, um, and the goal is to get it as quick as you can and, and, and not to belabor the thing and to know that if you have something awesome in front of you, um, there's no reason driving it through the wall 30 more times to, to, to find something you don't know you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to find a thing you don't, that you don't even, you can't even identify. Right. And that, this is not to say that every time someone does a lot of takes, that's the process, but a, as an actor, certainly that seems to be, have been my experience um, that, you know, when you get North of a certain number of takes, it's, it's because there's a thing that you can't find and you can't name it and huh. you keep hoping that it'll make itself apparent. And I think it feels like Eastwood and Cronenberg show up knowing a thing that they want and, you know, and hoping for any gravy they get as well. But if they have the thing that they came to do, then that's that and you move on. And as a result, everyone's in a way better mood. Right. And this lesson that you learned as an actor on that set must have served you very well as a director, right? Absolutely. It's one of the, one of the biggest ones for me. It was one of the things that was most important to me. Um, the, each time that I've directed, um, and, and granted it's, it's only been two movies and one episode of trailer park boys, but, um, that was always my, one of the things that was most important to me was I wanted everybody to enjoy being on the set, um, to take ownership of, of, of their piece of it. Um, but also to feel free to pitch and, any idea about anything to me um but also to know that um if we have it we have it and and sort of like if it takes 17 hours so be it some things do but if it doesn't there's no need to to force that onto it if you can make a day in six hours and you're not actually trimming anything and you've and you and you've got everything you want and then some there's no reason why everybody can't go home early that's right and and just the, the name of the character that you played on Million Dollar Baby was? Danger Birch. Now, is that not like the best name of anybody in a film? Like, come on. That's <laughs> pretty good character. <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty classic character. Yeah, that's classic. Okay, uh, Jay, please, we're going to take just a short break, if you don't mind, and uh, get in a sponsor message and then come right back. So you know how we haven't been able to see a movie in a theater for like a year? Well, the folks at Super Channel feel our pain, and they've done something about it. Now, this is a great idea they started last year. They've aligned themselves with the Canadian Film Fest, which for 15 years has been celebrating Canadian filmmakers. And they'll be programming the second annual Canadian Film Fest presented by Super Channel. Now, starting April 1st, the festival will take place for three 
consecutive weekends. Nine feature films will be presented on Super Channel Fuse, and they'll be on Thursday nights, Friday, and Saturday nights, all starting at 9 p.m. Now, they're going to have a linear run, so meaning that just like in a cinema, you have to be there, popcorn ready, when the curtain goes up at 9 p.m. You can't pick a time or stream it on demand. It's going to recreate like a cinema experience. So uh, keep that in mind. And you'll be seeing some familiar face on some of these films. There'll be uh, Kelly McCormick from Letter Kenny is doing one of the movies. Colm Fiore, he's been on a million things, but he's on Umbrella Academy now. And there'll be a lot of emerging stars as well. There'll also be 30 short films interspersed into the schedule, pre-taped and live Q&A sessions with the filmmakers, the odd masterclass, everything but pre-recorded heckling. So if you want to check out some cool new Canadian films, park yourself in front of the second annual Canadian Film Fest, showcased in April by our friends at Super Channel. Okay, we're back from that break. Uh, Jay, thanks for hanging in there. Congrats again on the Moody's, which starts April 1st. Yep. And uh, on... uh, this is a this is a very funny show, and it's a series that um, it's actually returning for a second season, but it's almost like there was a special or two a year and a half ago, and now it's back. Yeah. It's, it's sort of the way it's played out, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 a it is um, non traditional to say the least. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, we we the first go around was kind of a Christmas special broken up into. Um, well, six half hours or three hours, depending on how you do it. But they usually aired them back to back. So it ended up being a th- sort of three-night kind of Christmas special, I think, if I remember how they did it. Um, right. And, um, yeah, we got renewed. And, and first question was, is it a Christmas thing? And first answer was, no, it's just a TV show. And it's, it's just a normal, it's just a regular TV show. So, um, so yeah, we it is technically season two. But um, but it's like a it's a bit less obviously contained than the than the than the first the first go, which was effectively a Christmas special. Yeah, and if uh, you're just if you're just joining the show this season on April first, you just jump right in. You don't have to have seen the the Christmas uh, earlier episodes. It starts again, and away you go. Right. Oh gosh, yeah, completely. I think you know it's. It, I, 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 and it, I, I think it's really easy to catch up pretty quick. There's not much catching up to do at all. And 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 I think they we kind of they built this season with that in mind, knowing that like it is for all intents and purposes our first season. And um, but I, I yeah, I, I have a blast doing it, and I think it's super funny. It is super funny. Uh, it stars, of course, Dennis Leary is the head of this uh, family, Elizabeth Perkins. They're their parents. And uh, you're playing one of the kids um, along with uh, Francois Arnaud uh, and uh, uh, Chelsea Frey. Is that how you pronounce her last name? Frey. Frey, sorry. And, uh, you know, uh, any time you get to work with Dennis Leary, I'm sure, is a lot of fun. Um, I've been lucky. I was on the set of uh, Rescue Me several years ago in New York, and talk talkie and Boston Bruins and everything else. Uh, you guys must've sat down and uh, debated Boston versus Montreal for a while. Oh, that's really all Dennis cares to talk about. <laughs> and it's hockey. Um, but I, I, and I, and I say this, 
with my tongue nowhere near my cheek and, and, and with nothing, not, not even a, a suggestion of hyperbole. He, he is by far the biggest hockey nerd I've ever met. And, <laughs> and I have spent a significant amount of time with some. And I mean, I, I'm no slouch. I, I right. two hockey movies and a, and a book, yep. you know, um, and, great films too. <laughs> Thank you. And I uh, was interviewed in a documentary. And anyway, I, I, this is all to say that I, and with all the, all, all those different sort of periods, the both goon movies and my book and all this stuff, like it's a bunch of hockey people I get to be around. Um, and I have dear friends that are sports journalists and I'm surrounded by a lot of hockey folks and nobody comes close to Dennis. It's crazy. <laughs> he, he, and, and it's not, like he's from Boston and he's a famous Bruins fan. Yeah. Um, but he's way more of a hockey writ large uh, fan than I am. Like for, for the most part, if it isn't Habs or Canada, I don't really give a shit. I, right. I it, if I don't have an emotional sort of component, if that, if there isn't a, a soap opera that I'm, or a, a, a sort of grand epic saga that I'm connecting to, I couldn't care less. I, I, I find it hard to watch two teams that I don't care about play each other. And that, that's a dysfunction of my character. <laughs> it's a failing of my character, but so be it. Dennis just loves hockey. Yeah. However he can find it, however he can watch it, however he can read about it, there is no facet of hockey that he doesn't have an opinion about. Like he he'll recommend it. to me... Like he told me, it's a book I have to get, um, and I'm asking for it for my birthday. But there's a he 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 claims it is the single best book about the Summit series, um, and but that it's a it's a it's basically somebody's thesis project from I think Uni, uh, University of Manitoba, and um, and wow. but it's like he, and he, you know that's the kind of shit he reads. There there's nothing remotely bossed. Like there's no sort of easy connect there for him, you know, uh, aside from some of the players I sus- I suspect, but he just knows, he knows the game and loves the game. And so we obviously got on pretty easy from the, from the get go. Yeah. And, um, and yeah. there are, there are hockey scenes in the Moody's too. There certainly are. Yeah. Certainly are. You know, and, and, and uh, which is cool. Now, I imagine you're shooting this, all these new episodes we're going to see were shot during COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you probably would have been playing hockey at least once a week with Leary and some, some of the crew, I would guess, right? I think so. Like, now I, I'm a, I'm a, my, my skating is, is abysmal. Um, like Dennis is actually quite good. He, I, he, he still got his wheels under him. Um, and, and he can, he's got pretty decent hands actually, to be honest, the great revelation, I shouldn't say revelation. I don't, I don't know why I would ever doubt it, but Jerry D is one hell of a fucking hockey player. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that was the, that was when we came, when it came time to do our rink day, you know, shooting our hockey sequence. Um, I got to set and D- Dennis's eyes were wide. He's like, "Holy fuck, Jerry's good. He is." Like, yeah, he was just like floored at how good Jerry was at playing hockey. He he played for De La Salle in uh, yeah. back in high school, and yeah, no, he can wheel. It's uh, he's a pretty good player, and uh, he's very funny on the show too. He's got these great cameos where he pops yeah. in with a baby here and there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a fun fun show, and um, there was a. Uh, and did you know what did you you work with um, uh, Francois at all? Did you know him uh, from? Uh, we knew each other. We 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 were like friendly 
you know, sort of acquaintances and stuff and, and got on pretty well and have a lot of friends in common. But no, we had never, uh, never worked together before this. Yeah. People would know him from the Borgias and other things. Now, uh, I have to ask you about this. So Fox arranged for a, uh, again, the TCA television critics, and they did a virtual session for oh. the Moody's a month or so ago. And uh, we're all asking questions. And somebody asks Elizabeth Perkins, who is one of the great, uh, not Canadian, but one of the great uh, sitcom actresses and movies and everything else. She's marvelous. And and this clumsy moron uh, basically says, I'm so old. I remember when you were in your first movie. And did you think your career would not be as big as uh, the pretty woman star and I was, I sat here aghast and, and we could see all of the cast, the nine of you on screen, all trying to basically disappear <laughs> into the, into the background. I, I was, I was just infuriated. I yeah. thought it was um, a needlessly, uh, de- it was a deliberately rude comment. I don't think it was uh, accidental or anything like I, I, you know, and I hadn't, heard of that guy i didn't know that guy from adam you know he's not a he's not a tca member i didn't think so and and i i've been at this a while you know you you get used to some you know like i i just like and and and, and number one terribly terribly rude and disrespectful um and 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 with like a needless kind of mean troll quality behind it and um and i but I also knew that he, that was the sort of, he was hoping to get a rise and have some, you know, he was hoping to sort of make it worth his time to show up there or whatever and get something entertaining to talk about, have a great anecdote to tell his friends or something. I thought um, Elizabeth, you know, I, I was, like I said, infuriated and offended and I was trying to answer him. Um, but of course it's, yep. uh, she doesn't need anybody to defend her and, or answer for her. And so she, you know, uh, I think she took it like a champ and answered, uh, with, with, with more respect and dignity than, than the question or the journalist deserved. She was all class and heroic. I thought she just, she, she, in a very dignified way, undressed that guy in about 10 seconds, and it was uh, amazing. But in your entire life, have you ever heard such a been in such an awkward press uh, situation where something like that has been oh, said? That, that definitely. I, I wish, <laughs> I, I wish that that was a sort of uh, a crazy one off, but, oh, uh, but yeah, that's no. too bad. Um, yeah, look, it is what it is. And, and it's just like, it's, it's, um, it's, you're, you're inevitably, I'm inevitably going to say something I, I shouldn't. And someone is inevitably going to ask me something they shouldn't. And it's just the way, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Um, and it doesn't just because I can make peace with it doesn't mean, um, it isn't worth, uh, mentioning because like no one should treat i i i i don't know who raised that guy to talk to elizabeth that way i guess that's the bigger issue to me yeah exactly no it was Uh, it was embarrassing to that person You know, the Academy Awards are a bit later this year. Like everything else, they've been affected by COVID and shutdowns and delays. 
but they're going to happen, and they're happening in April. They're going to be on Sunday, April 25th, and they're going to be on CTV. You may not have heard of some of the titles because, you know, none of us have been to a movie theater for a while, right? So films like No Man Land and Minari and Trial of the Chicago 7, Promising Young Woman. Some of these are, are films I've seen on television because they've been streaming on different services. That's how we've been watching films. So in some ways, more people will have seen the films that will be presented at the Oscars this year. And in some ways, you haven't. You know, some films haven't even been available because the James Bond movie, I think, was made 14 years ago. They're still, they've still got it in the vault. They're waiting for us to be able to go back to the theater, and that's going to happen in the fall. But in the meantime, the Oscars go on, the 93rd Annual Academy Awards. They're not going to be a host again, but that's how it's been for three years. And a lot of it's going to be, you know, virtual. You'll see people accepting at home. Who knows what you'll see? And you're going to see it Sunday, April 25th, and you can get into it on CTV. Hey, thanks again for listening to Brio TV, the podcast. And we're in conversation right now with Jay Baruchel. And and, and just in terms of interviews and things, uh, Jay, I would listen to you. Uh, a few weeks ago on uh, one of my favorite podcasts, Malton at the Movies with uh, Leonard Malton. And uh, Leonard and I have known each other for years. He and I are 16 millimeter film collections. And uh, like, you know, we have Prince of Joe McDoke's shorts from the 50s. We're the only Joe McDoke's nerds uh, (laughs) left. But, um, but I thought that uh, that was just a lovely uh, podcast. If people are listening and want to hear something great, Listen to uh, Jay speaking with uh, Jesse and Leonard Malton. And uh, it was just such a warm, uh, I- embracing conversation. Lovely, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, what was it about Leonard that, in terms of his reviews, or, you know, Leonard's written many books, and you seem very familiar with them. Uh, yeah, you know, I what, was. what was I, it about know. his writing that made you such a fan? Um, affection affection for movies and he was like a one of the great teachers um they sort of did the best they could they introduced and everything to me and they are they are sort of my way into this entire life is just a function of them being like oh see you don't want to know why i love road warrior because of this that and the other okay jay so this is why we're when you're going to watch this that you think of this keep that in mind a sort of one-on-one course before every movie and so when when dad realized um, that I wasn't interested in playing softball or hockey, when 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 they both kind of realized that that sort of course wasn't there for me in terms of finding an identity for myself as a kid, um, they they did see though that I took to like a duck to water with movies, and once they saw that I loved movies specifically. They just leaned into it like crazy. And that became the, when it came time to get me a birthday present or something or a Christmas present, it was always movie or movie related. So, um, you know, where, whenever dad would go on business trips, he'd find a video store and he'd see what they had for sale. He'd also bribe them to, because in those days you had to wait like a year after a movie came out for rental for a, a right. year or two for it yeah. to be on available to, to, for purchase. And yeah. Dad would pay, like, I remember I, I owned Usual Suspects 
like the within a, a month of it coming out on video because dad just went to the guy at the video store and, and paid him like a hundred bucks cash for one of the tapes. Wow. And, and, and he'd also, he would also um, pay them for their catalogs, just the books themselves. They had the, the, the books that the video store owners would get every year that told them all the things that they could possibly order to rent out. Um, dad would buy those for me, which really there's no film theory. There's no criticism. They're just little synopses of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of movies. And so a Malton book, Malton's books were, were part of that. Yeah. So I had this great book, movie themed book collection as a kid. Um, that was everything from Ebert reviews to, yeah, random, just sort of movie guides, synopses, you know, sort of thing. And, and a lot of Malton. And, and as a kid, for whatever combination of reasons, I always loved watching Entertainment Tonight. I, I, you know, it was always on after supper. Yeah. And I, I loved it because that's where the trailers came out first in a pre-internet time. And if you wanted to see sort of previews for new movies before you got to see them at the movie theater, you always saw them first on Entertainment Tonight. And it was also one of the only places where you got to see behind the scenes stuff, right? They would do set visits. Yeah. And, and, and so in that era... It, all of that stuff, it's like, yeah, man, Roger Ebert, Elway Yost, Leonard Malton, um, the, these are all really important people to me because they were important people to my folks. And I yeah. was, you know, watched Saturday Night the Movies with my mom on TVO and blah, 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 all of this kind of hokey stuff. But yeah, this is all to say Malton occupies a, you know, pretty significant part of my sort of nostalgia and, yeah. and not just nostalgia because that diminishes because that said that seems to that, that chalks it up to just being something i miss it, it, it's a it's a ceaseless affection for movies um uh, of of every shape and size you know the yeah. the man is a, is a historian and and i'm sure there are movies he hates but he doesn't talk about those ones. So you just know about the ones he loves. No, you're and- right, Jay. Yeah. He, in fact, I once asked his wife, uh, it, the funny one in that family is Alice, uh, <laughs> Leonard's uh, wife. And, uh, you know, I'd, I've been at a few places. I worked at the Sun and TV Guide and Canadian Press and stuff. And I said to Alice, Leonard was on Entertainment Tonight for 28 years. Like, that's 100 years in television. How on earth did he manage to do that? And she said, well, he never spat into the wind. Yeah. And I wish I had talked to Alice earlier. (laughs) 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 You know, it was great insight because you're right. Uh, Leonard, uh, it's almost that old saying, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it. And uh, that's it, you know, and and because also fine, there's people whose job, other people who for whom that's a job. And I, and I get that and whatever that I'm not here to debate the merits of criticism. What I, all I'm saying is like, it's easier for me as a kid to fall in love with movies. If I'm reading about, you know, if everything I'm reading is a function of someone's love, as opposed to a function of everything they dislike about it. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and but, but by the way, there were plenty of movies that I'd see bad, read bad reviews of as a kid that I'd eventually get to see. And, the the entire time like i had this big jumbo movie guide and it had a a four-star system and uh and i remember there was like a whole bunch of movies in there that 
I would read the synopsis. I'd be like, well, that sounds super cool. And I'd see it was only one star. Um, and, uh, and I'd still go and eventually go and find a way to rent them and build them up in my mind. Uh, you know, as a, as a kid would do with their imagination, having only five lines to go on, you can imagine, you can imagine yeah. the best version of the movie. There's no way it can be one star. Um, and then you go to the video store and you rent, um, Megaforce with Barry Bostwick and you get home and you're like, Oh no, maybe it actually, maybe, maybe the book was right. <laughs> That's a pretty random reference, Jay. That's hilarious. Like what? It must be a mind blower for you to have picked up Malton's guide to the movies and looked up um, almost famous or crazy. Uh, yeah. Right. Million crazy. dollar baby. And there you are. Right. That's that crazy, man. And, and you know, like I, I, uh didn't get to direct any movies i think uh before roger ebert passed um uh but i did get to act in some um and so like i will never forget you know because i and I, I i i shouldn't read any reviews positive or negative but you know so so fucking be it um uh, <laughs> but, but i I'll never forget, you know, I was in this movie called She's Out of My League and yep. and um Roger Ebert himself reviewed it. Um and you know, like it wasn't someone for ebert.com or something, it was him and I remember him describing me. I'm paraphrasing to a degree, but I see it pretty clearly photographically in my head cuz uh. it's like one of these ones where like I call my mom and I'm like, "Well, I can retire." Like it was uh, Baruchel has one of those it, it has a one of the has the quali- those qualities of an actor that um, make you feel like he's a guy you know from the bar. Oh and, wow! And, 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 and you know, and man, that's all I ever want. That there like as an, as an actor, you know, obsessed with uh, obsessed to a to a fault with with like authenticity and shit, and you know. Um, to have that guy say that was a, was a pretty cool thing. And then no higher praise. That's amazing. Years later, I would direct a horror movie called random acts of violence that came out last year. And just did um, it. Yeah. Just out. And by far the harshest review it got was from Roger Ebert.com. Well, you see if, if Roger had been around himself, though, he would have said, I don't know. I don't know if it would have been to his taste. That's not my reason for mentioning. It's just like it's a it's a funny bit of context. That's all. He would have said, Jay Baruchel is just like a guy you would have carved up in a bar. I think. <laughs> <probably>. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Well, you know that's a great story, and I'm sure they gave uh, films like uh, Tropic Thunder and Knocked Up two thumbs yeah. up and things like that. So pretty cool. pretty pretty cool. Now, Jay, you've been very generous with your time. I just want to sneak in a couple more questions sure. here, if you don't mind. Uh, and uh, one of them, just going back again to your TV days um, earlier, um, you shot a series in Toronto, Man yeah. Seeking Woman, which I loved. Thank and uh, this was Simon Rich uh, created yeah. and directed uh, Eric Andre. My goodness, there's a guy, you know, talking to him is like pulling a pin on a grenade. You just yep. never know. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and, but you, you were a revelation there because it was such a physical role in this whole show was like a live action cartoon. Yeah. Uh, you know, it'd be raining out only where you walked, uh, yeah. you know, things like this. Um, that must have been a lot of fun. And you shot it in Toronto, right? 
Yeah, it was one of the best gigs ever. Um, you know, and with with the obvious typical kind of things of like we probably needed a day more uh, per episode. This yeah. is not to say we didn't deliver an awesome product. We did. It would just beat the fuck out of ourselves doing it. <laughs> uh, so like, you know, there's never a dull moment on Man Seeking Woman. There's yeah. always a penis monster or some big crazy set piece or you know they, they, we did a lot of awesome shit man it was like a, like you said it was like a cartoon come to life and 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 in practice it's basically a sitcom meets a sketch comedy show and uh you know and 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 god it was fun and one of the th- and and it was fun getting you know getting getting to bring the show to toronto was like uh, something something that was really meaningful and and um and and and, and what was super cool about it was with every um with every episode it became kind of more of like a co-pro you know by 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 season three you know half of our above the lines were were canadian you know directors uh, cinematographer production design costume design um not to you know not to mention you know good deal of our of our cast and and so it was this really cool, special, unique thing that I, I I thought you know had had no counterparts on TV. Um, it, how difficult it was to describe to people was a testament to how awesome it was, and yeah. the fact that it was this great fusion of like you know what what what's best in Toronto with what's best in New York and LA, you know, coming together and 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 you know, ma- making some pretty cool records. We made, we basically made three incredible records, you know, and, and, and after the pilot, I didn't think we'd get to shoot more. And after the end of season one, I thought we'd be canceled and same at the end of season two. And then at the start of season three, Simon was like, this is, this is probably going to be it. <laughs> We're going to build it. We're going to build it. You know, in case it's it, in case this is it, we're going to design it with that in mind, but we're also going to construct it so that, if for some reason FX, you know, doesn't sort of run out of goodwill and, you know, uh, yeah. we can keep going. We, we have the, the infrastructure to do so, but, but yeah, we, we kind of felt like we were running a bit of a racket up in Toronto where, you know, like, <laughs> like there's no way they would let us do this show if they knew what we were actually doing. Well, it's a very rewarding experience. I urge people to look it up. If you haven't seen man seeking woman right from the opening credits on, it's good. And uh, Jay, you're so physical in it. Were you a Buster Keaton fan or silent movies? You know, yeah, like there's a lot of that, isn't it? Thank you. Thank, well, okay. So, uh, nice of you to notice because because Pratt Falls and that that's just my favorite stuff to do in the world and and like if I've ever been if anybody has ever found me a funny or b remotely good at acting um, it is really down to two um, sort of heroes um, now Buster is obviously very important um, but I I. Uh, didn't connect to Buster um, the way that I connected to Rowan Atkinson and Michael Richards at the time. That, wow. that, that was like, like Mr. Bean is still my favorite show ever. I think those, those 13 or 12 episodes are um, yeah. uh, masterpiece, masterpiece of physical comedy and, um, and, and work in every country in the world. Yep. And, and, um, and, you know, Michael Richards, very, very gifted, very funny, um, and not just with his physicality, obviously, but 
what is most interesting, memorable, distinct in Kramer is the way, the, the, the myriad ways that Richards found a way to express uh, moments or yeah. emotions with his body. Or, <laughs> just to, or just to come through a door. Seriously, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. you, you think about him trying to short out, <laughs> trying, to, trying to short out the power in the apartment next door so the cat will stop meowing or whatever, you know, like, and, and he ends up electrocuting himself. There's just this, like, way that he decides to play that that nobody could tell him to do it. It, it, would, yeah. it has to just come from some part of him, right? Yeah. And, and that now at the same time that I was falling in love with them, I was on a TV show in Canada called My Hometown. My One of my first gigs ever is a kid show on, on YTV, and I did it for three seasons. And what was really cool about being 12, 13, 14 on that show is like, um, all of our crew were fresh out of film school. Now, to, to 12, 13-year-old eyes, they're all grown-ups. Um, but th- these grown-ups are like, they were 15 years younger than I am now, for God's sakes, right? And And so they were so keen to as you are, when you find a, a receptive youngin, when you find a kid who's interested in music from before their time or interested in stuff from before the time, you, you just like gravitate to them. Mm-hmm. And I was a big movie nerd. I showed up on set as a movie nerd. And so I was surrounded by a bunch of people fresh out of film school who were then like, Oh, here's a receptive young mind. And so I had, I had people lending me grownups, lending me Buster Keaton on VHS. Oh, you know, so fantastic. The three ages when I was like 12, I think. Wow. I saw the general when I was like 12 or 13. And so seeing that and then, and then loving Atkinson and Richards and it all kind of got together in the food processor of my, of my brain. And also to be perfectly honest, physical comedy prevented me from getting my ass kicked because like <laughs> grade seven and eight, I was at one of the worst sort of high schools in, in Montreal. Like I got a fucking knife pulled on me my first oh. week of school. And, and I didn't get my growth spurt till grade 10, 11. Um, and so when I got to grade seven, eight, um, in my mind, the way that my mom and dad had raised me is like, I give as good as I, I get. So if somebody starts something with me, if someone kid punches me, I punch him back, you know, which works if you're the same size as every other kid. But when you stop growing and everyone just explodes into puberty, you get the shit kicked out of you. So I ended up, <laughs> I lost a whole bunch of fights in grade seven. And, and at a certain point realized that if I just flail about and throw myself into lockers and slap myself in the face and punch myself in the stomach to get a laugh, they aren't fucking with me anymore. And, wow. um, and so I literally would like, yeah, do all these big pratfalls and, and crazy physical gags just to sort of like uh, dissipate any air of tension. Like if it felt like somebody was getting ready to punch me, I would start like beating myself up and then they would just lose, lose interest. So bullies would want nothing with uh, to do with this crazy bastard who was throwing himself into lockers and stuff. That's uh, that's a brilliant <laughs> idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and- they would want nothing to do with it. And they would be like, what's the point? He's not going to do anything. The kid loves hurting himself. Anyway. <laughs> um, when you mentioned Rowan Atkinson, I wondered, uh, were you a Jacques Tati fan? Did you discover him along the way? When Yeah, I did. So the, um, that's, uh, yeah, I, that I have a very, I have a very vivid memory of, uh, one of my friend's mothers when I was a kid saying, if you like Mr. Bean, you have to see Jacques Tati. Right. Uh, um, 
yes, uh, in, incredible stuff. I'm I'm not nearly as well versed in it as I as I should be, um, given how much I love that kind of stuff. Um, but I, 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 yeah, he's somebody that I have to kind of experience a bit more. I, I recently, in the past few years, kind of developed a, an interest in Harold Lloyd, who is like, the, oh my um, goodness, yeah. Who, who, if if we were alive in the, if you know those the era in which those movies came out, it, it would have been he 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 was the bigger movie star. He, he was like, the most popular of uh, Keaton Chaplin. It was Lloyd, and he packed him in every every for years and years and years. Yeah, and you know why? The only reason why everyone debates those two and no one mentions what Harold Lloyd anymore is because he owned the rights to his movies and he kept them all at his house. So the prince got all warped for the most part. So he, 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 he literally, so his sort of hands-on kind of thing, which was his whole MO is ended up being in a way what did him in because the, the prints of most of his things were act physically stored at his house in Los Angeles and went into disrepair a bit. Yeah. It's funny when, uh, and when that happens, people pull all their stuff off the shelves and people can't see it, and then they get forgotten. And you're right. Yep. We've always had uh, the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges with us. It, uh, it's, it helped their careers for sure. And again, just for people, if you get a chance to see Man Seeking Woman, there's one episode you did on a hockey rink. <laughs> and you, you were joking about you're not the greatest skater, but you got to be a pretty good skater to look like you're not a good skater. And that's what you were doing in this figure skating routine on the ice that was very funny and memorable from that series. So hats Thank off you. to you. Uh, listen, Jay, we've talked and talked. I, I really enjoyed uh, this uh, opportunity, and I didn't even get a chance. To, we didn't even talk about the Trotsky, which is a wonderful film, or uh, Goon. My goodness, those two movies. Um, you must have had so much fun uh, working on directing them. Um, great experiences, too, I'm sure. Goon, was that shot up in Sudbury? So um, Goon, Goon One directed was I, I was co-writer on, and it was directed by Michael Dowse, uh, who directed a bunch of Man Seeking Woman as well as both the Fubar movies, and it's all gone Pete Tong. We did the first one in Manitoba, in uh, Winnipeg, and Portage La Prairie, and Selkirk, and then wow. we did um, Goon Last of the Enforcers, the sequel that I directed, in, um, mostly in Barrie, Ontario. Oh, okay, a bit, a bit in Hamilton, a bit in Toronto. Hmm. Uh, yeah, they're uh, uh, wonderful films. If you're a hockey fan, they're really there's they're kind of an homage to the the tough guys, uh, yeah. and it's a great cast in the uh, the first I film agree. in particular. Yeah, yeah. That, like they're just uh, everybody really stepped up. Um, you know, um, so hats off, uh, hats off there. And your passion for uh, shooting and making film and television in Canada. Uh, this is a great hallmark uh, and, and something you should be very proud of because uh, these shows we're talking about, uh, Man Seeking Woman and, and Goon and, and the Trotsky and, and others, uh, were produced here. And a lot of that has something, you know, is directly thanks to you, right? And uh, um, uh, so congrats for, for doing that. Do you, are you optimistic about the direction that film and TV is going in Canada or do you see it? You know, the world is full of streamers now. It's a tidal wave of content. Is is Canada, you know, is it a good thing for Canadians? Yeah, I think so. I think so, because I think that, like, for most of my life, the kind of and thank you for the kind words um, for for most of my life, the the battle for English Canadian movies to to fight was 
um, for space at the cinemas, right? And and that that's why Goon is such a big deal. It's because we opened number one across the country. I can't name the last time a Canadian movie opened at number one in Canada. Maybe Porky's. Um, yeah, yeah. Go, it, it, you have to go back. You have to go back, right? Yeah. And and so the things come out, and they come out. And I've been through this. I was I went through this on the Trotsky. I went through this on Just Buried. I went through this on Goon Two. And I've been through this plenty of times where they they will put us out on the bare minimum amount of screens at a multiplex. Yeah. Um, you know because they sort of have to they'll fulfill the bare minimum end of their obligation. And, um, and that's that. And so most people don't even know the bloody things are there. And then, you know, then, then, then the theater chain owner gets to say, well, this Canadian movie that I'm wasting a screen on, it made no money in the first week. What's the point in just leaving it there the second week and we'll lose more money and they get rid of it. And so the thing never had a chance in hell. It was done before with always with the assumption that, um, you know, it's made to be, you know, fell, fallen asleep to on, on Air Canada or something like that. And and I think that, like, taking movie theaters out of the equation to a degree is a good thing. I think um, on Netflix, on Crave, on any on, – on Amazon Prime, I think it's often hard to tell the, 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 <laughs> the distinction between A movie and B movie is uh, far less noticeable. I, and, I, and, I, and, and I also think that, like, streaming is a great equalizer – People are clicking on what they want to click on, right? When you when you when you go go to iTunes or Apple Movies, whatever, and you see what's new, right? Yeah. You, you you don't always assume because you haven't heard of it and because Tom Hanks isn't in it that it has to be Canadian or not. <laughs> right. You'll watch what you what gets your attention. Yeah. And yeah. the more streaming there is, the better it is for Canadian movies because no matter what, we're always going to make movies at a certain scale, and and if we are reliant on um if we're reliant on the institution of movie theaters um we will never we will never take our training wheels off we will uh, never reach a sort of appropriate degree of maturity um as a with a, as an art form and this is not to say that we haven't done amazing shit of course we have the whole point is we're doing it in isolation and then anonymity and 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 it's and it does us it do, we we are only doing a disservice to ourselves as a people Right, and we can take a lot of lessons from French Canada. And they have a star system. Yeah, they have movies that they go to see. They have movies that are made meant for them, about them, and they get to see themselves reflected in their artwork, which is in keeping with every other culture on the world, around the world. Right, and so I actually think that um, I, I also, I, 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 movie theaters are fine. And they have worked themselves and they've worked themselves into a corner where they are basically just the place you go to see Harry Potter or Marvel K right, Good. Right. Let, let them let them have those. That's and they, they have they have they have built that and they have painted themselves into that fucking corner. Yeah. Let them have those movies. The rest of the world will watch the rest of the movies that they want to see on their streaming service. Yep. And in that case, you don't know if a movie's fucking Canadian or Irish or Australian or American. You see a poster, you watch the trailer, you see, this is something I want to watch, and boom, there it is. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We're all watching movies only on TV, only at home, uh, certainly through COVID. Um, and I guess this means that Goon 3 will be on Netflix or Amazon Prime or uh, <laughs> Disney Plus, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> your mouth to God. <laughs> uh, uh, Jay, I, I'm sorry. Is one other thing I got to ask you, and this will be it. I promise. Um, you did. We haven't even talked about it. These are big movies that Canadians saw. How to Train Your Dragon. And oh, yeah. what I want to ask is, and I've always been a fan of Craig Ferguson. Give yeah. me your best. And I know you often these things. You're recording your voices for your characters uh, in isolation. Uh, you know, in a in a little box like a phone booth. And of course, you were hiccup horrendous Haddock the Third, another great character name. Uh, give me your best Craig Ferguson story if you have one. Oh Jesus Christ! Um, uh, you know, I I um, <laughs> I have too much respect for him. Uh, to share any of the anecdotes that be, would be worth sharing, um, but I'll I'll say I'll say this I'll say Craig is somebody for whom I have a um, a great deal of affection for. He's a he's a legitimately good egg, uh, kind heart, uh, good soul, uh, treats people really really well, and he's certainly been incredibly kind to me. Um, you know, and and when he was on TV, his was pretty much the only show I looked forward to doing. Yeah, um, I, miss, I miss that show. It was great. It was really good. And, mm. and for me, it was like a friendly uh, port in the storm. You know, I, I, I get to talk to a friend. And so this, the audience and the TV goes away, you know, it's just me and him sort of thing, you know, and, and um, you know, we get on like a house on fire and, and, and <laughs> ended up having a, a strange amount in common. Um, and, uh, and when I hosted uh, just for my just for laughs gala, like whatever six seven years ago, he and uh, he he recorded a little intro that played before I came out, and it was like him giving me advice as a host. And he said, uh, "Here's some here's some advice. Three most important things." He goes, um, d- "Don't have uh, dark hair. Uh, don't be from Montreal, um, and, uh, <laughs> and don't speak with any kind of nasal voice." And, uh, <laughs> Goes, and, and you should be good. It was something to that effect. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, um, I, I, I love the guy. I get on with him super well. Well, uh, I, you know, I'm a big fan of his as well. Uh, he's got that that wicked Scottish uh, sense of humor and outlook, which uh, uh, I think adds to the mix. And uh, certainly, uh, uh, l- lucky you to have had those experiences. So, Alyssa uh, Jay, thank you. As as Roger Ebert would say, uh, speaking with you, it's, it's like hanging with a buddy in a bar. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I, oh, my pleasure. Appreciate you uh, being so generous with your time. Uh, and enjoy the Moody's, folks. It's coming on April 1st. Um, you can uh, watch it on Fox. Uh, and it's a damn funny show. Dennis Leary, Jay Baruchel, uh, a lot of wonderful people in this cast. So I urge people to check it out. But thank you very much again, Jay, for your time today. Thank you for yours. Thanks for having me, Bill. And uh, have a, as good a day as possible. I'm going to try. hope to see you one of these days coming up, buddy. See ya. I look forward to it, bud. See you soon. Well, thanks again for listening, everybody. And please like us, follow us, review us, whatever us, uh, you know, do all those things. And um, it'll help the the podcast uh, spread the word and get in front of more listeners like you. And, you know, make sure you subscribe as well to get on our podcast MailChimp newsletter. Tells you all about what we've got coming up. The podcast is produced by Phil Hong who keeps things together here every week. It's a tough job, folks, let me tell you. And it's sponsored by Super Channel, Bell Media, and Hollywood Suite. 
We've got some interesting people coming up in the next several weeks, so join us again, and thanks for listening in on these conversations about Canadian television. <laughs>